Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My guest today is a master of media. He's a creative genius with a knack to identify, reach, and influence audiences on an emotional level. He's created 10 TV shows, produced five movies, over 2,000 on-air TV promotion spots, dozens of TV commercials and sales tapes, and built one of the biggest, most diversified independent production companies. He's worked for and with some tough cookies, including Ted Turner, having co-wrote the business plan for Turner Network Television, or TNT. Ted also credited him with writing the first shopping network business plan, predating the home shopping network. He's worked with numerous directors, including Francis Ford Coppola, on films and his production clients have included Sony, Liberty Media, Telemundo, NBC, and the NBA, to name just a few. More recently, he's turned his attention to gaming and interactive advertising. His latest startup is a hyper-local social network that micro-connects gamers, enabling advertisers to reach the massive gamer market and Part of this includes a mental health vertical called Vent, a digital mental health platform designed especially for gamers that provides community-driven mental health solutions. Meet my multifaceted friend, extraordinary creative and media entrepreneur, Rich Malcolm. Excited, Rich, to host you on Say It Skillfully. Thanks so much for joining us. Molly, thank you. What a, 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 an amazing introduction. I'm humbled. Well, you have lived that life, my friend, and uh, your humility is one of the things I most love about you, among many other aspects. Uh, Rich, being a creative genius, master storyteller, I mean, that comes in handy regardless of one's industry. You know, I'm kind of wondering how this came to be. Were you a child creative prodigy or was this nurtured in you? So, you know, please help listeners get to know you and the life journey you're on. Well, I, I don't think I'm a creative genius. I, I just love stories. I love people. I love characters. Uh, I've always been curious from the time I can, my earliest memories, I've always had curiosity and curiosities are, are always driven me to understand whatever I'm working on. Um, and uh, growing up in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles in the 60s, Universal uh, Studios was, you know, literally six to eight blocks away from where I grew up. And I used to hear the monster set uh, live and different sound effects. And I always wanted to be a TV producer. So that really was deep seated from the very get go. Absolutely. And when I went to school at Tulka Lake Elementary School, you know, uh, Los Angeles, uh, the San Fernando Valley was definitely a company town. So many of the actors that you saw on, on television shows, um, I went to school with and on my paper route, uh, I delivered uh, you know, Andy Griffith's paper every Sunday and I would have breakfast with Sheriff Taylor and his son. Oh. And it, it was bizarre seeing Andy Griffiths on TV with a hit TV show and then me being in his kitchen, Sheriff Taylor making me breakfast with his son, Sam. 
So does, do you think that that, um, cause I think one of the things I see, you shouldn't see people for who they are. So you, what, did that help you not kind of be in awe of famous people? Like they were just regular people to you? They've always been regular people to me. Uh, you know, when you become an actor or an actress, director, even a producer like me, we all start out somewhere. And, uh, you know, on my first movie, you know, uh, it starred Jennifer Aniston. It was Camp Cucamonga. And you talk to Jennifer and her, Jennifer, her, her father was a famous uh, soap opera actor, but, you know, she was just trying to make it. And so everybody starts somewhere. And, um, and Kevin Costner was, was a carpenter and went from a carpenter, carpenter to Kevin Costner. And, uh, and, and so I've had the opportunity, you know, to sit and talk with many of these people just one-to-one -one casually. And, you know, the various comedians, you know, of the promos I've cut, you know, from Ray Romano um, to Ke uh, Kevin James and then Jerry Seinfeld would come in with you. Just listen to their stories. They all started out you know, small. Hmm. So talk about siblings, parent, parents, their influence on you. Um, I have a sister, uh, Nancy. Uh, we're three years apart. Uh, she's been terrific. We're still incredibly close today. Uh, uh, I had a very, you know, middle-class lifestyle growing up. My father was what would be a CPA today. Uh, he worked at Max Factor in Hollywood to begin, and then he became a chief financial officer. As the older I got, he kept getting promoted. And my mom uh, was a housewife and one of my biggest advocates. Sports, studies, were you a studious kid? You, you know, in terms of sports, uh, you know, my father wasn't into sports, uh, but I like to play catch and uh, at one time in high school, you know, people thought I could be a fantastic pitcher, but I, I sort of, uh, when the tryouts came, I wasn't able to deliver, but uh, I've enjoyed sports, uh, but they're not my passion, but I enjoy them for the entertainment value and for the skill, uh, the athletic, you know, admiring athletes and what they can do. And what was the other question? Academic for you, into school? You know, it, it, the, the simple answer is yes, um, but I, I went to the University of Southern Cal and, you know, people around me always felt were much smarter than me. And I learned really early on in my, literally my first couple of weeks at, at USC, I was in a philosophy class that we had to take as part of a requirement and everybody was reading this book about with about Eric Fromm, who was a philosopher, and they were coming up with all these things, and I, I felt inadequate that I couldn't contribute to the conversation. And so I just went uh, up into my dorm room, and I just read the book and just interpreted it. And uh, the next day, I ended up getting the highest uh, score in the test, which empowered me just to read and to try to process it and not be stressed out about, you know, understanding a specific point or you know, you know, finding the right answer. I was always able uh, in multiple uh, in, in essay very well because I could describe many things. Nice. Did you feel, you know, as a kid in elementary, high school and in college, did you feel like you fit in? Well, definitely not in high school until my senior year. And um, 
you know, I wasn't one of the hip kids until my senior year. And when I say hip, I'm popular. And what happened was I produced my first production was Alice in Wonderland at Richfield High. And I fell in love with Alice and then she was cool. And that's how I sort of got into the, you know, the mainstream. And what I realized, that, you know, you know, hip, popular, geek, you know, the nerds, uh, football team it, it was all perception you know people are people well it's easy to say now but as a young person do you remember like thinking i really need to fit in or was it you just kind of missed the whole boat absolutely i felt awkward in fact in seventh grade i'll never forget i had a crush on the girl in front of me and she looked at me and she says you're so zoftic and i came home and i was so proud of it and i didn't realize it meant i was overweight and like shrubby and and uh, and it was okay, you know. I, I've always been comfortable in my skin, but I think every all of us have insecurities and challenges, and you know we have to work hard to feel good about ourselves. Yeah. So um, talk about you know going in. Were you in the film program at USC? I mean, how did you evolve in terms of academics to your yeah, no, well, I started out in uh, initially. I, I uh, when I applied to USC, I, I applied to drama, and I was in drama for one day. And I looked around and I go, "This isn't me." And Lavar Burton was one of my classmates, and uh, you know, I got to know Lavar, and we would have conversations, and there were some other wonderful, wonderful people. But they had such a passion for the theater, and my passion was film and television. So I transferred over to the film school, and you know, I always questioned everything. I, I mean, the best part of film school when I went to, to USC uh, in the seventies uh, was you got to see great films, and you know, I saw you know the best of MGM, the best of Fox, and we would discuss it. But one of my professors, it was Cinema 190. It's one of those big auditorium classes after you watch a film. I remember him saying, you know, very proudly that he got accepted a job at Universal Studios as an assistant sound engineer. And I go, wait, wait a second. You know, my parents came from a very middle-class family and it was hard for my mother and father to put me into school. And here's a guy that is supposedly mentoring and teaching us and he gets an assistant job at a that I go and I and that sort of really triggered me to, to think that well this is an experience also in my film in, uh, in my film uh, the business of film which was in my first year uh, in the in cinema uh, there's a guy named named David uh, I think his name was David Farmer it was Farmer and the first thing he told us all, he said, uh, there's a, there was a guy here a few years ago named George Lucas. Don't ever be like George Lucas. He took advantage of, of, of the university. He did a short film. He sold it. He cut the university up. Don't be like George Lucas. And then six months later, um, George Lucas is my best friend because of Star Wars. And uh, it was so interesting because most people don't realize everybody and Hollywood didn't think Star Wars would ever work. It would be a big flop. And yet, you know, St. George on to great things. 
So talk about that. Was were, was George, you know, lamenting with you? Oh my God, people aren't getting it. They don't like it. What were some of those conversations? No, like? I I never met George Lucas. He was before me, but the professor was pointing him out because all over town there were billboards of Star Wars, and he was trying. The professor was trying to convey to the new students that you don't want to be like him, mm. and you know throughout probably for six months, he would badmouth George Lucas every chance he could get. And nobody knew who George Lucas was. And then all of a sudden, Star Wars broke. And on a dime, he, George was his best friend. I and, and George Lucas came to the university and supported USC. But but that was sort of, you know, my entree into, into cinema, uh, you know, the cinema school. And and, you know, they also wanted you to fund your own student film. And one of the things at USC for, I don't know how many years at the time, it might've been 60 or 70. One of the things you had to do at USC is in your second year, pro produce a short film on how to make a phone call. And the professor was Dave Johnson. And I said, I don't want to produce that. And, and he goes, everybody does. And I go, I don't need to learn this type of technique. I want to be a producer. And when I get on a set, I'm going to hire the best people around me that understand, you know, film lenses and, and, you know, composition of shots and everything. And he put his arm around me and he said to me, he goes, Rich, I'm not sure you're going to make it. And, and 20 years later, I, I turned out to be one of the few people in my class who, who actually produced anything. <laughs> so I, this is a skill as a young person to, you know, is it just naivete where you're like, I'm doing this, I'm not listening to you. That's not so easy. You know, it's a person in a position power for you to just diss them. I mean, how did you do that? You know, I, I, I just think I observe people and I just try to make sense of everything. And, you know, in, in media or storytelling, there can be a lot of arrogance about somebody pretending to know something or, you know, like they'll take a book and they'll say things like they understand it better than they do when they're really reading sort of bumper stickers off of, you know, a, a book review or something. And for me, it was really understanding whatever I wanted to do and to be able to talk about it. And in film school, you see the hypocrisy, you know, in, in real time. And you have people judging you on your ideas that maybe they don't have the context or maybe they don't know how to tell that story. And, you know, when I was going to school, the funny thing was you had to have an, a, a naked person in your film and it would make it more artistic. And, uh, you know, no matter what the story was, it was a nude person. Usually it was a pretty girl. So, you know, as you've, um, before we get to the career part, because that's fascinating, you know, just for listeners sake, what are elements of a great story? One that can be told simply, one that has good complex characters that, that are multidimensional, um, one that warms your heart or, tr or triggers uh, an emotion, um, and, you know, a story has to progress. Who were the influential folks 
I mean, who did you learn a lot from in school? It sounds like you heard learned some things you, you didn't want to do, but who who really were great pivotal well, mentors? It was funny. There was a, a gentleman named Ralph Carson. Uh, what happened was I, I started a school newspaper called The Row Run. And The Row Run was the equivalent of the Harvard Lampoon. And I started The Row Run. Um, one, there was a, a, a guy a year before who did something a lot similar to it, but he ended up you know, taking the money and running off. And I saw an opportunity and, and I started this newspaper um, to basically fund my education. At the time, my dad lost his job. And so I, I didn't have the means for cash flow. He had paid the tuition. And so what happened was the, the row run, which still exists today, it's a multi-million dollar business, um, is, was sort of like a satire on fraternities and sororities. It was like the social register. We made fun of everybody. And I wrote 90% of it. And it caught the eye of a, a marketing professor named Ralph Carson. And Ralph invited me into the business school, into the entrepreneurship program to speak. And it turns out Ralph is, well, uh, is considered the, the, the person who created the happy face. And in my bedroom today, I, I, you know, I moved to North Carolina a few years ago. I found a, f- a framed article from Ralph of all the notes he sent me. And uh, I, I have it in my bedroom to remind me of, of Ralph Carson. So he was a big influence. And he started uh, basically what's now was Chaya Day. He was the founding partner. It was Carson Roberts, which became Chaya Day. Wow. So how does it go coming out of USC and wanting to get into the business? Uh, You're recruiting for jobs. And how does that back then? What what was the path? Well, the problem is USC and many other colleges sell a false narrative. And that false narrative is that, hey, if you go here, everybody's going to love you. And look, I am very proud of of USC's film school. It's the best, one of the best in the country. And it was back then. But the reality is, is is nobody cares if you come out of SC. All they care about is, can can I make money with you? And it was very hard getting a job. and, And I ended up, I don't know, every day I would send out something like 50 applications. And you say, well, Rich, that's a lot. I well, I applied to ad agencies, production companies, talent agencies, and I ended up getting a job in, in the mailroom of International Creative Management, ICM. And the person in charge of HR, uh, human resources, turned out to be a guy who loved the row run. His brother went to USC and he, they read my, my monthly paper religiously. And when they, he knew, uh, he saw that I was the, the founder of the Row Run, he called me up and he, it was one of those wonderful interviews. He goes, you wrote about this, tell me about this. And then at the end of the day, I got into the mail room and I was the only one in the, my mail room that didn't have a master's degree or a law degree. Oh no. Wow. How long were you in the mail room? You know, I was lucky. I got out in five months um, and I became uh, the assistant or the secretary to the the top talent agency in Hollywood, Sylvia Gold. And she represented almost every primetime actress that, you know, was in a hit show. And she was amazing, uh, a woman. Um, 
And so I was on her desk and, you know, I loved it. I, I mean, I learned how to type and all that type of stuff and do all those things. But there was a woman on Dallas named Victoria Principal. I was doing her checkbook, you know, all these famous actresses. I was doing something for them. And then, uh, and then one day I get a call to go upstairs and I think I'm getting promoted and uh, I can't believe my good fortune again. And I go into this room and I see all the heads of the division, but I don't see Sylvia. And they sit me down and they accuse me of scalping um, concert tickets. And I looked around, I go, what are you guys talking about? And they go, well, you bought a bunch of tickets. I go, well, I bought a bunch from my school newspaper, which was still going. I, you know, I had turned it over. They go, well, we're firing you. You've been scalping tickets. And um, I, I looked and, and I literally had tears coming down and they escorted me out of the building. And somebody asked me what I was going to do. And I said, I'm going to score brownie points, which leads to another story. But what ends up happening to put a button on this story, I was accused uh, by the agency of, of buying you know, concert tickets and selling them for more than they were worth. And I didn't do it. And, you know, but everybody thought I had done it. And then what happened was, was two, three years later, I'm sitting in first class on a plane and the guy who fired me is sitting next to me, but didn't recognize me. And as soon as the plane took off, I turned to him. His name was Tom Ross. Again, one of the most powerful music agents in Hollywood. And I go, Tom, why did you fire me? And he looked at me. And essentially what, I, what he told me was that the Universal Amphitheater, the guy who was running it, his son, who was an agent, had a drug problem, a coke problem, and he scalped the tickets. And I was the scapegoat. And that was a really lesson learned in Hollywood, you know, and, and it, it was, you know, you know, foundational to, to a lot of my thinking that, you know, you can't trust any of these people. I mean, they literally fired me and I had done nothing wrong. And but it took three years for me to feel like I, you know, preserved my reputation. Wow. So that's hard. One thing I want to say, though, you know, about college, you know, I, before we leave it, is that, you know, college is a place where you really get to learn about yourself. And, and, you know, one of my businesses was producing, you know, or booking bands at USC. And one of the bands I booked was the then unknown Van Halen. And so I got to know Eddie Van Halen and the whole gang, and they, they would play Beach Boy music for you know, $100 a, uh, a, uh, a night. And the funny thing is the guy running for mayor in Los Angeles, Rick Caruso, was the social chairman at the SAE house. And when I booked Van Halen, he would come and complain that it wasn't uh, the Beach Boys. <laughs> so you learn a lot about this stuff. <laughs> wow. So, um just fill in the blanks a bit. And you mentioned brownie points, but just take us through the career journey, right? So what happened was uh, when I got fired from ICM, I'm sitting in this dumpy Beverly Hills adjacent apartment in my underwear. And I didn't know what I was going to do. My dad's out of work. I have no money in my bank account. Uh, I have one suit. I have one pair of shoes, Gucci shoes with two quarter size holes in them because that's all I had. 
And I, I, I remember saying brownie points. So I go, what's that? And I, and so I got this idea at the time you could call 411 information. So I picked up the rotary phone or whatever it was at the time. And I go, uh, Bloomingdale's please in New York. And, um, I get connected to the Bloomingdale's operator and I go, the executive offices, please. I get connected and this guy picks up the phone. He goes, Trob here. I go, Mr. Trob, my name's Rich Malcolm and you deserve brownie points. Those brownie points. I go, they're chewy, choppy fudge brownies you get for doing favors and good deeds. He goes, what? And he goes, brownie points? He goes, how are they packaged? I go, they're on a bag. He goes, well, when can I see you? And I go, he goes, I go next week and he picked a day. And, and so I didn't know what brownie points was. So I, I literally baked brownies in my dumpy kitchen. I got a bag at, at the uh, five and dime at the time. And I, I hand wrote a logo and put the brownies in the bag. I hopped on the plane in my suit and my holy shoes. I went to Bloomingdale's and I navigate to the executive offices and everyone seems excited to meet me. And I'm going, whoa. And mind you, I was only on the call with, with uh, Mr. Traub, who turned out to be Marvin Traub, CEO of Bloomingdale's, probably less than a minute. And when I showed up, there was a guy named Lester Grubetz, who's famous in fashion and merchandising. And he goes, uh, when I introduce myself, he comes over. He goes, Rich Malcolm, I'm so excited to meet you. I want to introduce you to our other new vendor, Ralph Loren. Ralph, meet Rich, Rich, meet Ralph. So there I am meeting Ralph Loren. And I'm thinking, whoa, uh, you know, what's going on here? And all of a sudden I hear uh, Mr. Traub, or Marvin Traub, going, is he here yet? So I go in, they usher me into his office. He's a guy in a suit with glasses, a big smile. He goes, let me see this. He takes one bite. He, he then goes, he goes, put him in a box and we have a deal. And, I, and, I, and we walk out of his office. I was in his office 45 seconds. And he walks me down and we talk. Uh, and then we get down to um, the food area. He walks into a door opens the door and, and the, the buyer at the other side looked like he saw a ghost. And Marvin Traub says, buy all of our stores. Rich Malcolm is my friend, all stores. And then he leaves. And it at the time was a $100,000 order, which today would be well over 500,000. And I, I laughed <laughs> and I, I, now how do I do this? I mean, that's how Brownie Point started. And it ended up, uh, we sold about a million boxes. We were in 2,200 outlets. and But I was flat broke. And fortunately, it was a, a bakery called Big Deal or Good Stuff in L.A. who believed in me. And um, I, they baked my brownies uh, with me there. And I ate the cookies and the cakes. That's why that's my passion today. And that was my meal until I got cash flow. Unbelievable. Can you believe yeah. that you're telling me this is unbelievable? What was it like doing it as you're doing it? Were you pinching yourself? Yeah. Well, what was fascinating was uh, I ended up in every major news publication. I became Bachelor of the Month in Cosmo and Bachelor of the Year. Um, people thought I was a multimillionaire, but again, I was sort of broke. I mean, you know, when the money came in, I, you know, I had expenses against it. 
And I ended up for that year or so basically living on a plane because I couldn't afford to stay in a hotel. So I'd always take a red eye every night to go to a different city. And then federated department stores hired me to uh, judge chili cook-offs and chocolate chip cookies and then promote brownies. And uh, I was also in a parade. I was a grand marshal in, in, in uh, Bermuda for uh, men's night only and in AC Cooper. So no, Brownie Points was great. And then Brownie Points was successful at Bloomingdale's. So we were the number one uh, Christmas product at Bloomingdale's in 79. And then eight, uh, and then 80, uh, we did it again. And, and Brownie Points would still be going today, but those nice, kind, thoughtful people from middle America who would come to the stationery show or the food product show and would buy a couple of cases, never wanted to pay their bills. And so I, I had bad debt of 5,000 a month. And I said, oh, this isn't sustainable. And at the time I was interested in cable TV and I reached out to Ted Turner and Ted wanted to meet me. So that's how, that's how I went from brownie points to working for Ted Turner. Oh my goodness. So you just call Ted like you called Marvin? How did, how did that work? Well, I, I, I was one of these guys who, if I really admired somebody, I really learned about their businesses and I would just write a note. And I wrote to Ted talking about, at the time, Superstation w, WTBS and what he was doing. And, and it was a simple two paragraph note, almost a fan letter. And then his office called and said, Ted will be in LA. Can you meet with him? I go, yes. And when I showed up, it was Bob Wessler, who was former president of CBS. And I give Bob Wessler a box of brownie points. Mr. Wessler, you deserve a box of brownie points. And he looked at these, he had smiley, had a big stogie in his, in his mouth. And we talked about TV and the next, well, two days later, I was ended up in Ted's office. Ted was out of town. And they introduced me to all these executives at Turner Broadcasting. And you got to remember, I'm still broke. You know, people think I'm a millionaire. And the day I was in Atlanta, the Atlanta Constitution did a major front page profile in the lifestyle section on me about how cool, you know, brownie points is. And, uh, and anyway, they offered me a job to be head of sales promotion and marketing. I had no idea what it was. And they go, we'll figure it out. And then I met Ted and that was the end of it. It's unbelievable. So the just talk of- about those days in media, because people probably can't remember, like, what were you doing? You know, my, my job at Turner, I started at Turner Broadcasting in, in July of 1982. And at the time... Uh, I was the 400th employee. CNN had begun about six months earlier. And I worked for a guy named Jerry Hogan. And we would travel to New York three days a week. And my job was to sell the vision of cable. And I would come up with ideas on what we could do with advertisers. And it worked out. And uh, when I left Turner, we were at 60 million, 65 million. Um, and, uh, it was amazing. And, you know, I approved a lot of the marketing and a lot of things. And although I wasn't head of marketing, I was head of sales promotion marketing for sales, but there was another marketing person. I ended up getting tapped on a lot of different campaigns just because I had ideas. 
And then I also would write business plans. And I, I wrote um, the first shopping network business plan, just did it on my own. I, I spent, I don't know, two or three months and I gave it to Ted and Ted thought it was a good idea because at the time everybody was starting a network and the board this said no one's going to buy you know buy things on TV and and the reason that gave me the idea is when I looked at, at our ad sales we were making more money in direct response advertising so I had a case so I could prove it worked anyway he gave it to a guy named Roy Spears who founded Home Shopping Network and Ted always credited me with with starting H you know that my business plan was the genesis for Home Shopping Network. Wow. So there's something about having an idea and pursuing it and then presenting it without fear of what the person says, which I don't think a lot of people have. Rich, and so was that just your groundedness to, hey, they don't like it, they don't like it, I don't really care? Because I think a lot of people would be like, well, I might have that idea, but I would never tell anybody. You, you know, again, it goes back to the curiosity and, and, you know, listen, at Turner Broadcasting, I was mocked when I first showed up there. I was the California guy who ate nuts and seeds. And, you know, I, I was, you know, square peg in a round hole. I, I, I wasn't part of the Southern culture. And, um, but I just, you know, I just, you know, I didn't, fight it. I just went with it. Um, and a lot of people, you know, one of my biggest deals at Turner Broadcasting, in my opinion, besides, you know, working on TNT was I was the one that got um, TBS and CNN into hotel rooms. I was traveling with Ted and he said, Rich, you got to figure out a way to get, you know, people advertisers to see CNN. And uh, at the time I was uh, engaged to be married and I would commute to Los Angeles. I lived in Atlanta three days a week and I commuted the rest of the time to Los Angeles and I was living in the Century Plaza Hotel. And I'm sitting there with my fiance and I see that you can get adult programming in, in, in the room. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, if you can have nudie films in the room, we can have CNN in the room. And so I came back to Atlanta. I, I told Ted my epiphany and he says, well, track it down. So I went down to Texas the next day and met with Spectre 9. And it turns out the CEO, Dan Owen, said I, they had been trying to reach Turner for years. Nobody would take the call. And anyway, we, we modeled out a deal over lunch, uh, three years uh, for every hotel they were in, 10 cents a month, 10, you know, per room. Uh, for three years. And so I came back and I, I was so excited. But then Ted said, we have to pitch it to the board, you know, to the uh, executive council, executive team. And when I did, um, there was a guy, Terry McGurk, who did very well, President Turner, he started laughing and he mocked me and, and said it was the dumbest deal he ever heard. Hi, Terry. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and so, you know, they said, you're giving away the house. I go, but nobody can see CNN. Anyway, every, basically the board said it's a dumb idea, but Ted says, you know, I like it. Rich, we're going to do it. And it was that decision that actually started the revenue streams at CNN that as far as I can tell. And what was interesting about this story was several people would you know, in media heard about it. There was a guy named Russ Berry, who was president of Fox, who came to work at Turner 
probably a month after Ted agreed to do this deal, and he, he kept telling me for 25 years what a dumb, stupid deal it was. And he would mock me every time I would see him at a Hollywood restaurant. He was so giddy. He would say, there's the guy who did the stupid deal. Well, when he died, guess what was in his obituary? That he did the deal. And so, and so if anybody learns anything from that, just, it was a good idea. You know, I mean, you know I, I've had many of those types of things. You know, one of my first TV shows was a show called Auction Travel that I sold uh, to Fox. And, and this is before, you know, the internet took off. I had all the excess capacity for Delta Airlines and then Continental Airlines, which became United. And so the idea was in oh, 15, 20 markets, every Thursday night, we would auction off distressed travel and whatever it was, like Delta and United to agree to do it. And the challenge there was the paperwork because there were still paper tickets. Anyway, um, the guy I sold the show to uh, got fired. A new guy comes in and won't return my call at Fox. And finally he does. And he says, that's a dumb, stupid idea. No one's going to buy travel on TV. And the next day Delta called me and goes, you know, there's a little startup that would like to you know, test an idea. Can we give them some of your inventory? And I said, sure. You know, cause I'm thinking Molly, I I'm going to, you know, have some time to sell this show. Well, I couldn't sell the show, but that little startup is Priceline.com. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, Rich, just uh, with Mr. Turner, I could imagine a lot of learning and maybe some funny experiences. Just share with us what you uh, learned uh, observing him and working for him with him. Well, Ted Turner is, a, is an amazing person. Um, everybody, you know, a lot of people early on when I first met Turner, they mocked him. He was the mouth of the South. He was this, he was that. Ted Turner uh, was and is a brilliant person. And um, he really, you know, he really defined an era in television. And he, to me, along with John Malone, are the fathers of cable TV. And he believed in news. And again, everybody mocked him when he did CNN. And, you know, no one, there's not enough bandwidth for people to watch news 24 hours a day. And I don't know how many news stations there are now, five, four, something like that. Um, but, you know, Ted, Ted was a, at one hand, a sort of a simple man, but also very complex and nuanced. And he was simple because he just believed, you know, in, in core values, and uh, and he would always bet the ranch, you know, on on different things. So like, I'm I'm still today in, in very honored to have been mentored by Ted Turner. Any particular uh, gems, learnings that you would impart for listeners from Ted? Well, yeah, Jerry Hogan, who was then running ad sales, my first day, he said to me, he goes, look, everybody wants to be around Ted and talk to Ted. He goes, my advice to you, if you want to get close to Ted, only, you know, only speak when spoken to or if you have something 
important to say, never ask them about the weather or something nebulous. So I saw countless people trying to befriend Ted. And when I was with Ted, you know, because I traveled with him all the time, I would sit on a plane. If there was nothing to be said, I kept my mouth shut. And all of a sudden he would talk to me about what he wanted to talk about. And that, that was a good lesson for me to learn and uh, to listen. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I also learned that from John Malone, you know, listening. John became a, a client and, uh, again, one of the smartest guys in media, just brilliant. Um. Rich, do you have any, you know, I, I always say on the show, you know, our struggles or challenges, which people have a hard time talking about. So I appreciate you being so forthright and honest, you know, where we learn the most. Any particular things, because you've done these, you know, the production movie thing, there's a lot of moving pieces. So I'm, I am kind of curious, your any stories where you're like, oh my God, we have to recover from this major diving catch um, and, you know, kind of where you've learned, learned the most. Well, I, I think, you know, I'm just grateful every day I learned something. And in, in TV and film, you really have to be organized and have a plan. And everybody has an opinion and everyone's opinion is better than yours. And the idea is you have to see beyond everybody and look at the story and look what you're trying to do and get to the heart of the matter. And, um, you know, when I sold my first film, it was a four million, four and a half million dollar film at NBC. And, you know, I was challenged every step of the way. And um, I co-wrote the film because I, uh, I was a TV writer. I, I became vested in the WGA. So, but that means I wrote enough. I was paid as a paid writer, even though Molly, I never thought of myself as a good writer, but I was able to write and tell a story. But on the first day of my set, uh, John Ratzenberger, who, who some people might know from Cheers, Clippy, he was Colonel Marv, and I'm sitting there with, with the other writer, Bennett Tramer, and I whisper into Bennett's ear because there's something John's doing I don't like, and the first AD stops the, the set and starts screaming at me, who the F fuck are you, da-da-da-da-da, because I look like a kid. I was, you know, I was in my late 20s. I was a kid. And I said, excuse me, everybody, take five minutes. And I walked outside. I go, I have, I'm the exact producer and the co-writer of the film. <laughs> and, and, and she was hired because the first AD is usually hired by the director. So she didn't know who I was. But she was uh, Jerry Seinfeld's first AD. So she was empowered to think. You know, she should treat everybody like an asshole. But she learned from me just with a big smile. And now nah, you're not going to be an asshole on my set. And if you are, you can leave now. <laughs> take five, everybody. Take five. Uh, talk to me about pressure um, and how you learned, how you respond to it, how you learn to respond to it. Well, uh, we all have pressure every single day. And it's. What, the, what I learned is not to worry about things I can't control because there's so much going on, whether it's a startup, whether it's a movie, whether it's producing a, a commercial or a promo spot, everything can go wrong. So you just, you can't worry about it and you just have to be able to adapt when there's a problem. And you have to adapt it without drama because that doesn't solve anything. So 
the, you know, like the way I try to manage pressure one, I swim every morning and pre pandemic, I was huge into yoga. I do three or four days a week. Uh, now I'm just easing back into yoga. I'm going to probably take a class this week, but, um, I think everybody has to find that outlet and, you know, swimming for me is meditating and, and reflecting. And, you know, um, I like to, I, my, my kids tease me. I, I, I use a word called context. I'd like to have context about what's going on and what the issue is. And if there's a problem is try to understand the other person's point of view, why that person feels that way. Yeah. Wise words. You mentioned your kids. Talk about uh, integrating, you know, the family into a very busy professional career and, and being a dad. Well, to me, my best job is being a dad. And when my firstborn Melissa uh, came, I wanted to I wanted to be in her life. And you know, prior to her uh, uh, arriving, you know, I was working eighteen hours a day. So I ended up starting to work out at four in the morning and uh, I would do, uh, I'd work out from four in the morning to about 7.30, I'd have two breakfasts and then I'd come home, uh, be with my daughter. Uh, and then uh, sometimes I'd go out for dinner, but I, and then I would try to always be there on the weekend and be present. And then as she grew up, we ended up going on what I call pocket full of 20s trips. And uh, I, I was traveling so much because, uh, you know, one of my businesses, I commuted to China. And uh, anyway, uh, I love my kids and, and they're the best part of my life. And I also have a son named Charlie. And it's being present in their life and understanding, you know, what they're doing and appreciating what they bring. What's the most, what has been the most challenging part of, of being a dad for you? You know, I, I don't, I love being a dad. So there's nothing really challenging. It's, it's just, it's, I, I guess, cause I've always lived my life, almost every decision I, of, I don't want to disappoint my kids. And so that was always my, my guiding North star in my decision-making. And which which kept me pretty grounded, um, and I think, look, in truth, it, you can never spend as much time as you want with your kids. And certainly during Melissa's early age, I was traveling a lot. With my son Charlie, I was home a lot more. Um, but I did my best to make up for it, and, and my kids always knew that I cared. I was there. I, I mean, even when I was in China, it was hard to. Do I figured out a way to get on video before video was cool, or I or I spent time in my office and I recorded myself and professionally produced stories for my daughter every day. Oh my goodness! I would love I would love to see those. Yeah. Uh, um, so, Rich, take us fast forward. I know you're um, having kind of a, a, a exciting ventures. So share a little bit about it for listeners. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I have a startup called Richie Knows, and it's a local social network for gamers. Um, I, I got into the gaming world on a deal I did with Fox about six, seven years ago, where I built mobile games tied to advertising. And 
I was so blown away by the gaming world and, and our, the effects, uh, the results of the test, Fox and WPP, um, that I wanted to get into gaming. And at first, I developed a feature film with Lionsgate called Game on Redemption, uh, developed and wrote it. Uh, for three years, and I was partnered with with Twitch and you know, a bunch of other gaming people, ESL and esports. And I got to interview hundreds and hundreds of gamers, and I wrote this script that when I would tell gamers about it, they would begin to cry, at least a third of them. Anyway, when I got approved for production, um, and uh, when I got to the CEO's office, John Feldheimer, John been a friend of mine, had been a friend a long time. I've always made him money. And John would only put up half the money and then the pandemic hit. So in Hollywood, raising money is always, uh, always problematic. And the reason being is, is the studio still holds a majority of the rights and the money you're getting holds fewer rights. So that's why at the Academy Awards, you hear people saying, it took me 10 years, 15 years to get this done. Um, and so the pandemic hit, um, and so I didn't know what to do, uh, and somebody reached out to me looking for ideas on their business, and I just pitched out, how about a local social network for gamers? And as soon as I said it, I go, ah, I'm going to do that. So I spent a year thinking about it, and I spent another year teaching myself how to build a mobile web application because the world was closed during the pandemic. I hired a tech team in India and we built a, a minimal viable product and we ended up testing it in um, Southern California and we, you know, over-indexed on every significant major uh, key performance indicator. And so that happened last summer and, and now we're going out for our seed funding and we have an amazing team of approximately 30 people. And I think what warms my heart is I, I know we can make a difference in gamers' lives. Part of my development process, what I learned from my film is that a majority of gamers are unhappy. At the time, Pew's had a study, 82% of people in social media are unhappy. Anyway, many of the gamers that I interviewed would start off with a tough you know, facade or veneer and within 90 seconds, many of them had tears because nobody had ever just talked to them before. And so in my first prototype of Richie Knows, I, I have a, a, a link called Vent, V-E-N-T. And what the link was, was to a bunch of, of um, helplines in Los Angeles. And then I got a call from IBM, the entertainment division, and they were interested in licensing Richie Knows I'm pre-product, I'm still building it. And they had a client and one of the executives saw the link and they go, what's that? And I explained it. They go, whoa, you can do better, Rich. Uh, I can, let me introduce you to Optum Tech, which is United Healthcare's uh, technology arm. I spent two weeks with them and they said, you can build a, a mental health uh, space that might be more popular than Richie knows. Anyway, after about a couple of weeks of just having a great time brainstorming, um, the CEO calls me and said, hey, you know, we're sorry we can't fund you, but what you're doing is amazing. And, you know, Molly, I wasn't asking for money. I just said, well, IBM and Optum Tech, I just thought, 
Well, what was so cool was it got me thinking, you know, I knew nothing about mental health, but within a week, uh, Dr. David Feinberg, who was then head of Google Health, reached out to me uh, through a friend and David had heard what I was doing. And he says, Rich, you're one of three people in the world with community driven mental health solutions. He goes, stick with it. And, and to David's credit, he gave me all of his personal contact information and he followed us every step of the way through our alpha test. And to me, I, I, I pinched myself. I, did, I knew nobody at Google. Here's the president and CEO of Google Health giving me his personal address. I mean, how cool is that? That's spectacular. Well, we're going to save that for part two because I know a lot's on the way and I'm just looking at the clocks. Time's flying by. So to wrap it up, Rich, just share with listeners, you know, you, you've had, you're still on the journey, but it's been an amazing one. What was it like for you to share your journey today? Oh, I, I, I listen, I, I love to tell stories. Everybody knows me. I have always a story and I'm grateful that I've met some really interesting people. On the next podcast, I'll tell you how I got to know Steve Jobs. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I, I, you know, it's just, a, I just love people. And uh, I end up in situations where some funny things happen. Well, I think listeners are uh, pretty and on that as I am. And my friend, you are a real gift. I'm just so grateful for the being of you. So um, if I can be of any help in any way, shape or form, you know how to reach me. And I want to thank you for being a part of the solution in our world. Thanks so much, Rich, for joining me. Thank you. I greatly appreciate it. Take good care. Um, okay, folks, my thought for the week, as you felt from Rich, follow your heart, live in the present moment. And that is a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Rich's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. 
And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 